Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Vaccines for children aged between 5 and 11 are given the green light by NIAC. We'll discuss the implications. Also tonight, the head of Instagram appears before the US Senate as the company introduces new measures on teen safety. And it's the nightmare before Christmas for Boris Johnson. The UK Prime Minister is criticised after his aides are filmed joking about a Christmas party during lockdown. It even caught the eye of these two. So they've decided to cover it up. Not a great idea, that is it. If we've learned one thing in the last 24 <laughs> hours, is that you can't get away with covering things up. No, it will. that will come back to bite them at some point. We want to hear from you tonight. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. aged between 5 and 11 will soon be able to get their COVID vaccine. It comes after the National Immunisation Advisory Committee recommended the move. A lower dose jab should be offered to around half a million primary school children, with the rollout being split into three different categories. Well, our news correspondent Sarah King spoke to Karina Butler, who's head of NIAC. There will be people who will say that they got the vaccine themselves and they were happy to get it themselves, but they do have a nervousness around giving it to their children. I think that's probably one of the most common things we hear back from people. Do you think that people should be absolutely certain before they make this decision for their child? Well, having looked at all the evidence, I would be more than happy to give it to my child or my grandchild in that age group. Um, of course parents should stop and think and they should think of their individual family circumstances. We totally appreciate that. We know that the vaccine has been well studied in children, that in addition to the safety data from the clinical trials, there now is real world data in terms of safety because it has been given to over 4 million children in the US have received their first dose and over a half a million have received their second dose. And so there's great comfort in that. We have a safe vaccine and we have a need. And I think that need is very evident at the moment. So that's why we have recommended it for children. Just given the fact that we've seen such a rise in COVID cases within that cohort, you'd imagine a lot of those will have become infected in recent months. Yes. Well, Sarah, I'm glad you bring that up because there's a bit of a good news story in that. Yes, we recognise that a number of children will have had infection and at the moment they account for just over 20% of the new cases that are coming. Um, but in fact, uh, when you are, have had infection and you are vaccinated, you get even stronger immunity. And that's particularly relevant now because our concerns are about the arrival of this new Omicron variant. And there's data just coming out on that that shows that, yes, vaccines are a little bit less protective against it, but their protection is not totally obliterated. But for those who've had infection and get vaccinated, they actually have the very best protection. 
do you accept that this is going to be difficult in terms of a communications campaign now, in terms of ensuring that the right information reaches people and that they're not confronted with misinformation, particularly in an online space? Yes, I think that is a problem. We have to face that, the misinformation that is out there. Um, but I think, uh, you know, just as we have done before, uh, everyone will be making efforts to make sure that there is good, trusted information readily available. The HSE are working on the information leaflets for parents. The HSE website, which is a WHO approved website, will have all the information and the frequently asked questions around this for children. So I think there will be a lot of easily accessible, good information for parents. Well, joining me to discuss this more is journalist Jen Hogan, Professor of Immunology at DCU, Christine Losher, and I'm joined on Skype tonight by GP Knut Moe. Uh, you're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, Christine, to start with you on this, I presume you'd see this as a very welcome development. You're particularly happy with the safety data on, on this because with all vaccines, we're always interested to know uh, the safety measures behind it, the trials behind it. But I think particularly when it comes to children and that young age group of between five and 11, uh, it's a very sensitive one. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's one of the first kind of port of call of parents is going to be how safe it is. Um, the safety data from the trial itself is really strong in that there was no none of the rare adverse events that we've seen reported in other age groups. Um, the minor side effects that you would see um, with older children were the similar in this age group. But I think more importantly, the US real world data where 4.2 million of these vaccines have already been rolled out to children this age, they haven't had a single report of myocarditis, which is this heart inflammation that we did see as a rare adverse event in the 12 to 15 year old cohort. And it was a concern for parents when they were making decision about that. So we think it's because there's a lower dose going into to, um, these uh, smaller children. So I think the safety data is looking really, really strong, both from the trials and from the real world data that we have thus far. So you believe there's a reassurance there uh, especially because it's it's essentially being trialled in the US as well when you have four and a half million children, aside from the, the, the vaccine trials that are already in place because it's being rolled out so efficiently across the states. We're seeing how it's playing out in that younger population. Absolutely. I think that's a real advantage for us, I suppose, that the FDA approved this first EMA. We're about a month behind that. And it did give us a chance, I suppose, to see that real world data. And I think that we're in a very advantageous position now that when parents are going to make decisions about vaccines for this age cohort, that they don't just have clinical trial data. They have a huge amount of real world data. And I think that should bring a huge amount of reassurance um, about the safety of the vaccine. And I think we're going to see very, very soon in the coming weeks, we're going to see the efficacy of that vaccine because 40% of the cases in the US were in this age group. And that was why they were so keen to roll it out so quickly. So we're waiting to see those numbers fall in the next few weeks. OK, um, what do you think when you hear um, that, Jen? Like, what's the view from parents on this? Because we know that there is, like uh, adults would say, they're happy to get a vaccine, but we are hearing anecdotally that they say, well, when it comes to my kids, there may be a bit more of a reluctance there. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm hearing, certainly, from speaking to parents. And I've been speaking to parents for weeks now, really, at this, as we've been expecting this uh, this approval to come. I think it's very reassuring, as Christine's pointed out, that there's been no cases of heart inflammation reported, because that's obviously a big concern, particularly for mothers of boys. The fertility misinformation, that's still lurking, it's still hanging around, and there's a lot of parents still have concerns about that. But I think the biggest question that most parents have around it is why? Why are we vaccinating our children when we're told 
that the, the risk from COVID for most children is very, very low. Now, there are some parents obviously are very, very appreciative and very welcoming of the fact that this has been approved by NIAC today, but there are still a lot of questions around why. And I think, like Nayak said, on giving it approval, they've said for most children, COVID-19 is a mild illness which will resolve. However, a small minority of children will have more serious disease and it's in order to protect those children from serious disease. And also in recognition of the negative psychosocial and developmental impacts of COVID-19 on children. There's a whole lot of things at play, but people will be wondering, Jen, and I, I will be run, wondering um, about what Jen is saying about, you know, the benefits uh, versus the risks here that if it is very mild in kids, um, is there an ethical issue over giving them a vaccine? Yeah, and, and I completely understand that concern. That conversation's mm. been around for a long time. And I think what I'd say to that is that there are two considerations. One is, is that while for the most part this infection can be quite mild in children. There are a small percentage of children who do have this inflammatory syndrome that can happen as a severe complication. And there are, while it might seem like a small number, about 0.6 or 0.7% of children that are hospitalised, if you just look at the numbers in the last few weeks, that's actually stacks up to be, you know, maybe 60 or 70 children. So the numbers will kind of stack up, I think, over time. The second consideration is, is that there's a huge host of studies out there now that look at long COVID in children. And they do look at it from the point of view of the impact on their education, their, their social skills and everything else that they engage with activity-wise. And I think that what's coming through from those is, is that even though there's a range of between two and 10% of children with lingering symptoms, even if you look at an average 5%, that's a huge number. In fact, in the last few weeks, it's potentially 700 children. Yeah, because so, the cases have blown up in absolutely. that age group. Absolutely. So I think as we see those 13,500 children in the last two weeks, we're talking about what we can do in schools to make them safer. This is going to be a key tool to be able to decrease case numbers in those children. OK, um, Knut, you're a, a GP. Have you been receiving calls from parents um, asking about this vaccine? Have they come to you with questions? Yeah, I think this news came through today um, while I was in clinic and, and certainly there was a few people had, had even been on already this morning before the news came through. Um, I think there is a, a, a certainly a, a large degree of enthusiasm, but there's also people who are parents who are very appropriately cautious and uh, want to know more and want to know really what the programme is going to look like and and all of those questions we discussed uh, why am I getting this because of uh, because of uh, a very mild illness uh, in, in this age group uh, and what are the side effects so so really all, all the things that, that Christine and Jen have discussed uh, you know they, they're coming up they're real world issues uh, and at the end of the day I think no no parent should feel pushed into this I think really they, uh, they it's up to the HSE now to to take this advice from NIAC and and allow parents make an informed decision based on the evidence that's there, as Karina Butler said, um, to help them and even decide with their children if they're of an age where you can have that sort of discussion with them. I, I discussed it with my two boys this evening about whether they'd like to get the vaccine. Uh, one of them had got the MMR last week, so he was still remembering the uh, the needle in the arm. But, so he was a little reluctant, but but they're very keen to, to, to get it and to play their part as well. So, uh, so that's not to yeah, be... Uh, what, what you've said there, the messaging here really is critical, isn't it? And I know uh, when the vaccines came out for adults, it was very much go play your part, do it for everyone, do it for yourself. Um, 
it'll it'll have to be different this time round, won't it? I mean, it, it'll have to be approached maybe with a bit more sensitivity and also um, getting parents involved and leaving it very importantly up to them to make the ultimate decision on this, would you say, Knut? Well, absolutely. Uh, I think it's really vital that, that nobody feels forced into getting a vaccine for their child. It's a very emotive topic. Um, at the end of the day, vaccines have proven to be safe and effective and they've they've cured diseases. But we are at a point where this, where the long-term safety data, and NIAC puts their hand up in their paper and says, you know, that 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 just that is an unknown at the moment, uh, as do all of the researchers. So what we can say is this is what we know based on the evidence that's there at the moment. Um, there are caveats that have it that evidence but all evidence points now to these being very safe very effective vaccines if you choose to take them now there is a these priority groups uh, point to people with increased medical risk and, and NIAC has come out quite strongly saying it's strongly recommending that those people should consider because they're at a higher risk of complications from COVID um, but it should be offered to to healthy other uh, otherwise healthy five and two 11 year olds. Um, Jen, what do you think of that? Like, what is the best way to approach just this, do you think, with parents? If a lot of people are coming back to you, and, and Knut's mentioned it as well, saying it's so mild when kids get it, um, so I don't really see the point of it. What's the best approach, do you think? I think the information campaign is going to be vital, and I think that it's, it's going to be really important to be straight with parents, both in that regard, and even, as Knut pointed out, about the long-term um, data that's not available, because people are raising that a lot. And I suppose if, if they're straight with parents about why we're getting it for children and what the actual benefits will be for children in terms of, as you pointed out, other benefits beyond health benefits, which are obviously essential, but even school, missing school and missing activities and other things like that. But it's going to be really, really important that we have that clear campaign with trusted voices and that we have these the questions and the concerns addressed repeatedly. Because you have to bear in mind, not everybody will have other children. Like in my case, I have teenagers and I have three children in this category too. So I've already gone through vaccinating my teenagers and a lot of my concerns. I was reading up and listening to Christine and listening to other experts speaking about it. But if you haven't had a child in that category, then you may not have tuned in at that stage. So it need the, the misinformation needs to be addressed. The genuine concerns need to be addressed. Parents need to be able to feel that they can address their concerns without being dubbed anti-vax. That they can, If they have genuine concerns, that they can they can ask the questions of the, the right people and get the answers that they need. And it needs to probably be addressed repeatedly. I think that that's really the, the most important thing that it that we hear it in a lot of places. In terms of the rollout, then some would say the most obvious place to roll this out is in school. But I, I don't think they're going to go down that route. We're hearing about, you know, the HSE vaccination centres again, maybe the GP. We will get more details mm. on that in the coming days. Um, do you think there's a there's a there's a good way and a good place to roll it out? And indeed, with regard to the information campaign, should it be done online and the likes of like WhatsApp and I mean to target parents, but feel like it's real information and not misinformation. What's the best way to do that? Yeah, so I think just firstly, in terms of the rollout um, and the priority should be for those children with underlying conditions and those living with people with complex needs. So certainly with the children with underlying conditions, I would have said that's kind of a more appropriate setting for GPs anyway in the first instance. But in terms of rollout, I don't think schools should be used for rolling out. I think that might actually cause problems for parents. I think parents might feel that there's not a level of control over the consent for that vaccine. I think we need to be very sensitive mm. to parents. Even um, though they would get their, their jobs in schools. Absolutely. But I think in this instance where parental concern to, consent is going to be very important, 
I think we need to use the mass vaccination centres. We use them for the HPV vaccines and any of the catch-up vaccines that we've had for school kids over the last six months. And they've worked really well. So children have been used to coming into that environment. So I think they're the best place so that a parent can be with them um, and that they're done outside of school because we do not want to have any mixed messaging around children being vaccinated in school and having any concerns of parents about whether or not you know, a child was vaccinated without their knowledge. I think we will go down a rabbit hole if we start leaving that open for, for concern. So I think we need to be very clear about the messaging, as Jen says, but I think they need to be done through mass vaccination centres with parents in tow. OK. Um, have you heard anything as yet, Canute? Because um, obviously we're hearing there from Christine in terms of the rollout that there will be groups targeted first, the immuno, um, children of immunocompromised people, children with underlying conditions. Um, they will be prioritised in this rollout. Have you got information to date on how, because the vaccines are, are in or will be in the country shortly, um, do you know how soon you'll get your hands on those, those doses, the smaller doses that are suitable for children? So, so I think it's a separate supply from what I can understand. So it, that has yet to, to arrive in the country. Uh, I think really it's important to remember that, that that NIAC has issued this guidance that the Minister for Health has, has accepted it and then it's up to HSE to operationalise it. Uh, and that may, that I think the mass vaccine centres will definitely be involved. To what extent GPs will be involved isn't really yet clear. I suppose you have to remember that GPs are heavily involved in the ongoing booster problem, uh, the booster programme at the moment. They are heavily involved with flu vaccines and, and regular regular winter illnesses, which have taken off as well as COVID uh, concerns. So it, it's unclear to, to what extent GPs will have an involvement in. This This group does need to be treated with kid gloves a little bit. They need to have the time. We need not to be rushed. They also need to have the physical space to, to allow all of that to happen. And, and so for those reasons, it may be that the mass vaccination centres is more appropriate. But I, th I have heard that I suppose before Christmas is uh, is where they were hopefully looking at starting the increased medical risk component of the five to eleven year group, but I think that's just conjecture at this point. We'll just have to wait to hear from the HSE what they have planned. Okay. Also today, Christine, we heard from Pfizer when they were talking about um, the Omicron variant and how well their vaccines work. They say that three doses is what's required to neutralise this variant, as they call it. I'm just thinking of kids now who will be getting two doses. Will they very quickly be required to take, get a third dose, um, as well as the general population, which are all eventually going to be on this, yeah. on this booster campaign. So there's two things I think that are important to answer on that question. The first one is that um, when the waning immunity might happen. So for example, we're going to know an awful lot about Omicron's behaviour, I suppose, in a vaccinated population in the next couple of months in Ireland and Europe. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens with case numbers. I think if you vaccinate children and give them two doses, you're talking about you know, the next two months before children are actually going to be fully covered. You're talking about three to four months before there's any start of waning immunity. And waning immunity tends not to wane as quickly in children as it does in older adults. They tend to have a more robust immune response because their immune system is younger, essentially. Um, so they, they will have a better response initially, which will give them a really good coverage. Um, the booster, the third shot that we're seeing may potentially have to be uh, for everybody. I mean, we're already seeing that we're going to have to give that to adults. If the booster is required for Omicron coverage, then I think everybody's going to have it. So we could be facing into a situation where the two shots may give children 
a good amount of coverage, but they may need a third shot down the line. And we won't know until we see what waning immunity looks like in children of this age. So we don't have that real world data yet to be able to fully answer the question. OK, um, Jen, just to move on, because we've talked about boosters there. And uh, a lot of people were annoyed when the Taoiseach said that they're, you know, I don't know to use the word complacency, but that certainly there wasn't the urgency there when it came to taking up the booster vaccine. Um, do you think that it's been around the confusion about how you get it, where you get it from, more so than people thinking, well, I've got two doses. Look, there's no rush on a third. There's a bit of both, I think, going on. There are some people who have their two doses, don't really fancy the idea of getting a third dose, certainly from people I've heard from. But the majority of people, again, it's the same sort of thing, confusion, or have had previous appointments, haven't cancelled, haven't been able to cancel appointments. I know that's been changed today. But it's again, there's been so much mixed messaging and there's the, you know, that, that change in talk from, from booster to a, th a three-dose vaccine. And that's Although maybe what we need to... we're still calling it a booster and I think they are still calling yeah, it a booster, I don't but think, the thunch there wasn't. I think, don't think the mixed messaging is helping anyone. I think, again, it's, it's one of these things that we need to be really straight on. OK, um, Knut, uh, what's happening? I mean, you're on the ground there administering these booster doses. How do you think the system is working um, and this sort of duplication, multiple appointments and people maybe going to you and then receiving something from the HSE and ignoring that? Um, do you think this, this, the whole system needs to be more centralised? Um. Yeah, I, it very, very much in short. Uh, I, I think, you know, what we're doing on the ground is we're vaccinating people and, and that's going great. You know, we have our own booking systems in our practices. We know our patients. We know the ones who are high risk. We bring them in, same as we've been doing since February of this year, nonstop. Um, and then what happens to that data is that that gets centrally uploaded to the HSE. Uh, and the logic is by that, and that's what's supposed to happen now for those patients that are we are vaccinating in their 50s or 60s, that they shouldn't then get a text for a mass vaccine centre. Um, so it, it remains to be seen. I've certainly been offered a vaccine myself, um, having having had my, my booster dose as a healthcare worker and had to find a way to cancel it and go onto the HSE website. So there needs to be an easier process to cancel um, rather than a simple one word text response, which seems to be what they've had up to now. Um, so it's it's a little bit more joint up systems would be, would be very useful in allowing people to reschedule. But they're dealing with a very big, big uh, rollout programme. I'm sure it's uh, these things are normally designed yeah. over a number of years. So I know. And, and although we're hearing and um, I think, you know, the government accepts, look, there are issues and the HSE has talked about these challenges with the rollout when you're getting it from three different places. Uh, but nonetheless, they have pointed to this lack of urgency in people. Uh, do, do you see that? Are, are people putting it off in your clinic? Um, certainly there's, compared to if you think back to February and March where, you know, our, our, our poor receptionists were dealing with hundreds upon hundreds of calls every day and uh, and, and actually getting quite irate phone calls from patients as well. Uh, you know, they went through an awful lot. Now, I think there's there isn't that sense of urgency. There are people who are keen to get their booster, but they're not waiting to, you know, five months and a day to, to, to call us up. Um, they might be six months after or, or there or thereabouts. And I just sort of think there's a, the, the sense of urgency, I think people felt it relieved having their full full course and I think there is a sense of relief in knowing that if you do get COVID at the moment the chances are that even with the, the vaccine course and not being boosted it's going to be hopefully a milder course so people are happy to to not not get it uh, as soon as possible and that's why maybe you see the weekend walking clinics being quite heavily uh, populated in places like City West. 
Okay, uh, there we'll leave it. My thanks to Christine Losher and Knut Moe, who joined us tonight via Skype. Jen Hogan will be staying with me as we discuss Instagram's new measures for teens on the platform. Stay with us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Now, Instagram is planning changes to how teens use the app. The company says it will be stricter about the types of content it recommends to teens and will nudge them towards different areas if they dwell on one topic for a long period of time. Well, Jen Hogan is still with me and I'm joined by tech editor of independent.ie, Adrian Weckler. Adrian, um, this all this announcement from Instagram that they're in, imposing these tighter teen controls, you like, came ahead of the US Senate briefing, which is taking place today. But could you outline what they have announced, um, what difference it'll make? So a couple of things mainly. So first of all, they're going to stop recommending what they regard as being dangerous or potentially dangerous um, accounts or topics to teenagers, for teenagers who have Instagram accounts. And that might be when they're searching for something, that might be the accounts of, uh, of uh, other Instagram users itself. They're also going to um, allow teens to bulk delete things like uh, content that they might have put up or likes uh, that they might have uh, contributed themselves. And generally speaking, the theme here is to try and give teenagers a little bit more uh, safety, a little bit more control over what they put up. Um, because all of this came off the back of that internal research um, unveiled by a Facebook whistleblower, um, wh which highlighted um, how the app contributed to body image among teenage girls and, and other such problems, and really how it was a toxic place. So they were forced into a situation that they had to be seen at least to act. Yeah, that's right, absolutely. And that will come as no surprise, that internal report that Facebook conducted, which showed that a lot of teenage girls in particular feel worse about themselves after using Instagram on issues such as body image. Anybody who uses Instagram, which is most Irish people, by the way, at some point or another, um, will not be surprised by that finding. Instagram, for its part, says that the issues here are much, much larger today. Uh, at the Senate, for example, it is recommending that there should be an independent body uh, set up in the US. It presumably would ask for the same in Europe. That would decide some of the standards that would apply to social media. It's asking for things like uh, guidance on age verification, which is the elephant in the room, because no matter what 
Instagram says it's going to do for teen accounts. Instagram doesn't know whether a user is eight years of age, 12 years of age, or 22 years so of age. So these controls will be in place for, say, if you're on Instagram and saying you're uh, 14, say. Yeah, it's for... But some... you could go onto Instagram as a teenager and click the box that you're 20. Well, it's not just that you could. None of those could. controls are in place. You do. <laughs> so we know empirically that 84% of kids between the ages of 8 and 12 in Ireland have a social media or a social messaging account. So they are going on and signing up to the to sites like Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat, usually, by the way, with the consent and guidance of their parents. But they are lying about their age to do it. And Instagram doesn't really have any way of knowing that, partly because there's no reliable age verification system. OK, so we've got a whole rake of new controls, but they may not make any difference at all, even to somebody who isn't particularly tech savvy, and we know kids are, they can still just say they're an age that they're not. They can completely bypass it. And as Adrian says, they are, and often with their parents' knowledge, because, you know, when you're setting up an account, how often, even when you're setting up a, a new device, do you just say that the person is 18, so there's not restrictions and things aren't coming through to parental emails all the time? So, I mean, the, it's, it's great in theory. In theory, it all sounds great, and it all sounds very reassuring to parents, oh, there'll be all these extra controls, and especially if you have any concerns at all about your teenagers. But in reality, well, first of all, as, as I didn't said, we have the age thing, but we also have the fact that most teens will find a way around things. And, you know, you have your, your fake Instagram accounts and your real Instagram accounts, and you have the one that'll keep parents happy and the one that they'll set up for their own access. Does that happen? So, oh, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so they have the one where the parent follows and then they think, oh, that's all my little darling is putting up. And then they have the one where all the stuff really happens. And that's, that's just been a well, teenager. Well, that's why kids don't use Facebook. Isn't it? That the reason that kids yeah. do not use Facebook is they know that Facebook is for, not even their parents, for their grandparents. Yeah. And, and that's why kids use Instagram, TikTok and Snapchat. Do they use Instagram? Because you, you've got a son yeah. tur uh, turning a teenage, teenager tomorrow. That's what, is this weekend, Instagram? that's right. So, I mean, I have, a couple of, I have a couple of teenagers and an adult daughter and then I have an, I'll have a newly minted teenager this weekend. And I'm, I'm, I was just noticing the other teens looked to be on Instagram. The, the guy who's going to turn 13 this weekend, he has never looked to actually go on Instagram. So I wonder, is it starting to move away already from children of that age? And are they more interested in TikTok and the likes? And this is bringing parents back on board and getting parents to nearly, nearly encourage their children if they're going to sign up to a social media platform, this is the one to go for because these are the ones that has the parental controls. Okay, do, does TikTok have parental controls in place and are they effective? So TikTok introduced a few new safety features for kids. For example, if you are, again, a teen account, um, a stranger can't download a video that you made. It, it, they can't also contact you directly through a direct message. YouTube is a particularly interesting one because YouTube last year had to ban all comments on videos made by kids or by teens. And the reason they had to do that was a very creepy, insidious one. It's because mm. predators were leaving remarks and comments in the comment section of uh, videos made particularly by teenage girls with timestamps. And it got very, very creepy, very, very quickly. So YouTube just banned all comments on teens' uh, videos. And um, Google has also uh, put curbs on uh, the ability for teens to search for uh, adult-themed stuff okay. as well within Google. But again, only if it knows that they are teens. Okay, so, and, and do you think teenagers are reluctant to admit they're teenagers? I mean, in fairness, it, look, we were all teenagers once, you know, you, we all thought we knew it all and we were all really grown up and 
like if you're going to admit that you're a teenager, you're going to restrict some of your access to, to certain things. You're going to, you know, you're going to have these new um, controls placed well, in your you account. Maybe all the comments and you're you interested know, in all I that interaction I mean, how many times have well? we had these conversations with teenagers that are going, don't accept requests from, yeah. from strangers and your number of people that you have following you is not an indication of how popular you are, how worthy you are. But, but this is still part of, I suppose, a teenage psyche. And it, it's very hard to, to get around that. So I mean, the big questions the big question is like, what regulations are required? What would help parents identification, navigate their way through so, this? Identification, We're supposed to have an online safety commissioner mm -hmm. for one in this country. We now know that there's no way we'll have an online safety commissioner for at least another year, despite this being at least a year and a half uh, now in train. The major problem here is that we as a society can't really agree ourselves on some of the guardrails, like age verification. Should teens have to upload their PPS number or their passport to a big tech company like Facebook for their age verification? Even as I say that, you're, you know, yeah, taking a breath because that freaks us all problems. out, rightly. So, so then how do we introduce age verification? What are the limits to which we should uh, uh, allow or we should mandate big tech companies uh, to, to, to allow kids, you know, what they can or can't do? We're not ourselves sure. Right, OK, well, the questions remain um, and we'll see what comes of that, that Senate hearing today. But for now, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Jen Hogan and Adrian Weckler. And coming up next is the party over for Boris Johnson. There's fury from the public and a top eight has quit after allegations of a party during lockdown last year. Welcome back. Now it is the nightmare before Christmas for Boris Johnson. Downing Street has been severely criticised after a leaked video emerged showing uh, his aides joking about a Christmas party while the UK was in the middle of lockdown restrictions. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh... Would the Prime Minister condone uh, having a Christmas <laughs> What's the answer? I don't know. I didn't want the party. It was cheese and wine. Just be clear, it's not. <laughs> Is cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business meeting. <laughs> I'm joking. This is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. And it was not socially distanced. Well, sometimes it's difficult to work out whether stories like this get through to the general public or are they just for political junkies? Well, it's fair to say uh, that once Anton Deck got involved, the nation is fully aware of what's going on. It is all change income now, though, because yesterday the celebs chose a new leader via the gift of a secret vote. And that means David's reign is over. Ah. But they weren't celebrating. No. They didn't have a party. They categorically deny any suggestions that they had a party. <laughs> and this fictional party definitely didn't involve cheese and wine <laughs> or a secret Santa. Evening, Prime Minister. Hey! For now. Well, after a day of intense criticism, Boris Johnson came to Parliament armed with an apology and the promise of an inquiry. I make no excuses for uh, the frivolity with which the, the subject was handled uh, in, that, uh, in that rehearsal uh, that people saw in that clip. Uh, and there could be no excuse for it. And it was, it was uh, I, I, can, I can totally understand how infuriating it, it was. Well, earlier I spoke to...
Sky News correspondent Enda Brady. I asked him how Boris Johnson is trying to explain this all away. Yeah, you could say that. Look, he said that he was furious about that clip and he has every right to be. But I think a lot of people are asking questions now. Was he at the party? Was he at Downing Street? You know, he lives in a flat above one of the rooms where the party was allegedly held. Did he hear it? Was he there? A lot more questions. You know, you get the impression this story still has legs and it has a long way to run yet. But he has apologised for that video clip. Allegra Stratton has now resigned in tears. But this has been a deeply damaging day, really, for Boris Johnson's government, for Number 10 Downing Street, and for the, the wider public. You know, if, if the British government are asking people to get on board with new measures and new restrictions, I, I really think today has been a seismic day in Boris Johnson's premiership. It's possibly the worst day he has had since he became prime minister. Well, I think we can have a little listen now to uh, that resignation statement by Allegra Stratton outside her home today. My remarks seemed to make light of the rules. Rules that people were doing everything to obey. That was never my intention. I will regret those remarks for the rest of my days and now for my profound apologies to all of you at home for them. Probably regretting those remarks today anyway. Uh, we don't know about a year ago, but uh, there were the tear-filled the tear -filled response there. And we have had a resignation. So is this all part of an orchestrated move by Boris Johnson to try and move on? Well, look, I think her position was untenable. She simply had to go. There was no way she could have stayed in government. When you think back, December the 18th, um, I remember it very well last year because it was my birthday, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't have people around your house. There was no socialising whatsoever. And that video clip was recorded two days afterwards, making light of, you know, the sacrifices everyone was making in this country. So she absolutely had to go. Boris Johnson, I think, now will be hoping that that is enough, that, you know, the, a decision has been made, she has been removed, she's gone, that that will be enough to get this off the front pages. But his problem is that this is not going away. And of course, tonight now he has brought in new restrictions that will be in place. They'll be reviewed in January. But he's got himself in a hell of a mess, really, courtesy of that party and that video clip. And I think Anton Deck, really, in all honesty, have delivered uh, uh, the kind of punch that the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, has been hoping to deliver for a year, a year and a half, and hasn't got anywhere near landing. And Anton Deck with that, what they said last mm. night on I'm a Celebrity, cleverly delivered, I think they've caused them real problems because it has resonated with the public. You know, I've been out and about the last couple of days. I've been in Wales covering storms. People are talking about this in a way that, because it was delivered by Anton Deck, had a politician said that, it just wouldn't have punched through. But this really has. Yeah, because, I mean, when you look at what Boris Johnson uh, has gone through, uh, Dominic Cummings has failed to take him down. There is this air of invincibility around him. Anton Deck then come out and, you know, it's not the first night they've been doing, they've been niggling away at him. But this uh, last night, I think, um, ultimately got an awful lot of attention. Does that mean something like this really sticks this time? Yeah, I, I think it's resonated with the public because, you know, as much as we're in the news business, look at the viewing figures that I'm a Celebrity gets. Countless millions of people, primetime TV, everyone's watching. And it, has, it really has resonated with the public. People are talking about it. 
and it has punched through. But Boris Johnson's problem now is trying to get the public on board with more restrictions, you know, coming up to Christmas, asking people to work from home, wear face masks, COVID passports. He's on a very, very sticky wicket now. He really is. And it'll be interesting to see what happens next. But this story has been front page news now for seven days. It will be again tomorrow. He has got some serious problems. He really has. Yeah, are people going to buy into those new restrictions? Because the big thing is when you announce um, measures to target something like the threat of the Omicron variant, you want people to get on board with it. Yeah, I think, like I say, a difficult, damaging day for the Prime Minister. It has certainly chipped away at his moral authority, his leadership. And I think after the two years people have had here, you know, Cummings... That all happened and it went away. But this is yet another example of people who are telling you to, to live by these rules and then doing something completely different. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of anger out there tonight about this. And whether people now get on board with more restrictions and COVID passports, you know, the booster vaccine program that he has put so much faith in, 23 million booster jabs to be delivered by the end of January. I mean, he's hanging by a thread really in terms of, getting people to comply. And mm. I, I just think this has been a turning point today. I really do. Okay, Sky News correspondent, Enda Brady, thank you for joining us tonight with your insight there. Well, elsewhere, tensions have been brewing on the Russia-Ukraine border for weeks now, with tens of thousands of Russian troops amassing at the border. It's also ratcheted up tensions between the United States and Russia. All of this was the backdrop to a call between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin on Tuesday. The US president says he warned his counterpart of what would happen if Russia invades. Meeting with Putin, I was very straightforward. There were no minced words. It was polite, but I made it very clear. If, in fact, he invades Ukraine, there will be severe consequences. Severe consequences. Economic consequences like none he's ever seen or ever have been seen in terms of being imposed. He knows his immediate response was he understood that, and I indicated that I knew he would respond. Well, I'm joined now by Donica Obakon, Professor of Politics at DCU. Um, and Donica, to come to you on this, 100,000 troops now amassed at the Ukrainian border. Uh, bring us back to how all this came about and what Vladimir Putin's motives are in doing this. Well, Ukraine is important for Russia. Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union. And uh, from Russia's perspective, it has seen itself on the back foot for the last 30 years since the Soviet Union collapsed. Most of uh, the areas of Central and Eastern Europe where Moscow held sway for decades are now members of NATO. Uh, in fact, almost half of NATO members joined since 1990, and most of them were formerly, again, under Russia's orbit. So this is the front line from Russia's perspective. Ukraine is the front line uh, in terms of putting down where it considers its sphere of influence to be and stopping NATO's expansion into its backyard. OK, so then Joe Biden comes in. He makes that phone call. Um, we heard this strong warning he gave to Vladimir Putin. But, you know, is any going to act, action going to follow off the back of that? Or are we really just seeing words here that but the US are going to be very slow to take action, if any? Well, if I was in Ukraine, and I have been a frequent visitor to Ukraine over the years, I wouldn't be reassured. I mean, let's... 
Let's look at the realities here. Ukraine isn't under threat of invasion. Ukraine has been invaded. It's not under threat of occupation. It is under occupation. Crimea was occupied by Russia seven years ago. Mm. Uh, Southeastern Ukraine has a simmering conflict which has taken 14,000 lives in the last couple of years. And this is a country that's on the borders of the European Union. So it's not a very far away place. And what did the West do? What did NATO do? What did the European Union do? They put forward economic sanctions, which have not in any way modified the Kremlin's behavior, as we can see by these actions now. And if you listen to that clip, uh, you know, what Joe Biden said is that there would be, un, you know, unprecedented economic sanctions. He's clearly ruled out any military actions. And that's essentially... Putin will be listening to that and will say, I can absorb economic sanctions. I have absorbed economic sanctions. Mm, but he would be right to be slow to um, for there to be sort of military sanctions or to do anything in that way. Um, there's been talk before, there was talk by Obama back in 2014, and then we saw the annexation of Crimea. Um, Absolutely. And, and Joe Biden deals with this in his memoirs uh, and says that ultimately they came to the decision that you know, they weren't going to commit troops to Ukraine. And that's still the reality. I mean, this is a president who has withdrawn troops from Afghanistan under pressure from the Taliban. He's not going to commit fresh troops to, to defend Ukraine against Russia. And, uh, and I think what we have to recognise is that, you know, we, just, we do have a kind of a Cold War again, but the, the Iron Curtain has moved eastwards. Uh, it's no longer in Berlin now, the wall. It's along essentially uh, Ukraine. Ukraine is the fault line. Yeah, and what sort of pressure are Ukrainians feeling over all of this? Like, how threatened do they feel about what's happening? Oh, they, they feel under immense pressure. I mean, as I said, their country is under occupation. It has been invaded. They have a very determined adversary in Russia, but they have very weak and irresolute friends. Um, the US may be the most powerful country in the world, but as we've said, it's not going to commit itself militarily uh, to defend Ukraine. And Ukraine is not a member of NATO, so it has no patron. It has no security alliance. And then Europe comes into all of this, of course. Is Europe doing anything here? Because we know that Russia um, is important to Europe for supplies like gas. So they'll make a decision based on that on whether it's a good thing or, or not to intervene here. Yes, and again, look at it from Ukraine's perspective. I mean, Nord Stream 2, which is this huge uh, pipeline that's connecting Russia and Germany directly, going around Ukraine uh, to guarantee kind of uh, pipeline gas deliveries, uh, that was, that was um, completed after the annexation of Crimea, after the, the war in southeastern Ukraine. So the European Union has, has demonstrated, unfortunately, that when it comes to Russian-European Union relations, it's not going to uh, throw out those kind of very important economic relations in an effort to send a signal to, to Russia that, you know, the annexation of uh, Ukrainian territory is unacceptable. Of course, Germany has a new chancellor. Do, will Schultz want to send a message to Russia quickly on this? Um, would he like to do something to kind of impose his own position now? I think it's too early to say what the new German government uh, will be like. Uh, Angela Merkel was a, a model conciliator uh, in many respects. And it was under her tenure that Ukraine was promised in 2008 that Ukraine would one day join NATO. The problem is, is that NATO is not going to take on a country which has unresolved territorial disputes. And therefore, it's in Vladimir Putin's interest to 
maintain those protracted conflicts in southeastern Ukraine because he knows that the European Union and NATO are, are not going to look favorably on Ukraine's aspirations to join both of those organizations if it has an ongoing conflict. So Russia has a major role to play in this and it has no interest really in resolving the conflicts in Ukraine, unfortunately. Okay, well, a sense there that uh, despite Joe Biden's words today, nothing is about to change anytime soon. Uh, there we'll have to leave it. That's it from us. My thanks to Dunica and to all our panelists tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. And tomorrow night, we will be speaking to the Taoiseach, Michal Martin. So join us for that. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.